Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host in space and time, Jason Snell. Hi, Stephen. How's it going? It's uh, it's going well. It's good to be back. We're back in space. I'm just really just in my office, which I guess yeah, is okay. in space. It's sort of not the outer space in a way, but like on the surface of a planet. A planet. Do you ever have um? Maybe I'm the only person who thinks about these sort of things, but sometimes I I I like it's weird that. Like I have this office and I work at home most of the time, but I come in here to record and like all my stuff is always still here because things like gravity exist. Mm. Right. And it's like spinning around in the universe and this wood block on my desk. It's always just right, right there. It's pretty. Yeah, well, that's, that's, a uh, that's uh relative relativity, right? That's the, your presence as the observer. I was actually just watching a, uh, a clip from uh, it's the first episode of the reboot of Doctor Who, and there's a line where he, where uh, the Doctor says, "You know, we're we're spinning around this planet at a thousand miles an hour, and the planet's spinning around the sun. You know, flying around the sun at ten thousand. I don't actually know what the what the real speeds are. I wonder if they look them up or they they just approximated. Um, but, you know, but the point is, you know, we're just clinging to the skin of this planet, and and if we let go, I mean." And he stops, and I, I think, well, if you let go, nothing happens because gravity is going to hold you to the planet. But it is, it is true that you know we we're not moving at all, or by other terms, we're moving quite fast. When I was a kid, I used to think that it was centrifugal force that held us to the uh, to to the Earth, which is funny because that doesn't work that way. Sort of the opposite of how that works, works. the other way. Yeah, yeah. And only later did I realize that it, it's it's mass that causes uh, gravity. Before we get to the show this week, Jason, uh, there's a little uh, announcement that we want to talk about. Um, okay. If you would, uh, am I fired? You're f- yeah. Sorry. Oh man. Uh, centrifugal forces just shot you right out of the podcast. No, not at all. Um, we have some really exciting news here at Relay that uh, now, dear listener, you can sh- support the show directly through the just announced Relay FM membership. Membership comes with a, a lot of cool perks. Uh, we're going to be doing bonus episodes of the shows during Relay's anniversary week in August as part of like, our birthday celebration, having extra content that's members only for that. We're doing a monthly behind-the-scenes newsletter. Uh, it's actually something that I'm heading up uh, So kind of look at how we do what we do, upcoming stuff, interviews with hosts, that sort of thing. And then uh, 15% off anything in the Relay merchandise store. So we have stickers and buttons and T-shirts. Spoiler alert, new t-shirts coming soon, I hope. Mm-hmm. Um, the stickers are really great. We heard from uh, Patrick Sullivan on Twitter about the, uh, he stuck a, a liftoff sticker to his laptop. And it uh, looks great. That liftoff art is uh, so might good. be my favorite. Mm. It's really good. Um, and uh, you can check this out. You can visit our show page, uh, which is relay.fm slash liftoff. And we have three plans of membership, two monthly plans. And then one annual plan, uh, if that's what you want to do. And it'd be really awesome to go check it out. A really good and new way to support uh, what goes on here at Liftoff and all the shows at Relay FM. Yeah, and and you can specify a show. So if you want to support Liftoff, you're not, you know, your money's not going to other shows that you don't like or that you want to support separately. The if you support Liftoff, it supports us directly. Exactly. And that's uh, one of the nice things about the way that Relay memberships work is it's for for people 
to you can support all the great shows but generally we expect that people are going to want to support the shows they like and so if you like this show that would be uh, one way to help uh, support it if you don't like the show you probably haven't heard any of this which is uh, yeah why are you listening to a show why are you hate listening <laughs> hate to lift off <laughs> anyone, listen to something else does anyone rage listen to a podcast about space i don't i don't think that happens uh, i don't know maybe aliens they go. So we you keep saying that there aren't aliens, and they're like, "No, there are." I can't yeah. say anything because I'm here secretly. Go, and they hate it. Yeah. So go check it out. There's a there's a page up as well at relay.fm/slash/membership. Explains it all. And like Jason said, you can pick and choose from your shows, and uh, be really awesome. So thank you so much uh, for those of you guys who uh, are joining up. So Jason, as is our tradition, we have pre-flight checklist items. Pre-flight checklist. This is the news, sort of news from space. Yeah, it's like that we like to talk about news before slash we get to our big topic. Kind yeah, of exactly. Uh, yeah, but with a space theme. With a space theme. It's a space podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we have some Phobos follow-up. We we spoke last time about <laughs> the fact that Mars Moon Phobos is doomed, <laughs> disintegrating, <laughs> uh, coming apart at the seams, and. The, the 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 theory is that the idea is that the uh the debris from when this moon is it's breaking apart is going to get uh flattened into a ring and that Mars will be a ringed planet, not unlike Saturn and others, at some point in the future. Yeah, I mean this is this is a story about uh I've said this on the podcast a bunch of times that our solar system is a dynamic system and the reason we don't think of it as dynamic we think of it as unchanging is because we don't live very long and even human society has not been around that long for us to notice some of the changes that happen in the in the solar system and this is a great example of that which it's going to be millions of years before Phobos falls apart but yeah it could fall up apart into little chunks and uh, form a ring but even the ring is not going to be permanent and eventually the ring will probably get uh, get wiped out too and, and there's some thought that a lot of planets are like that where um rings are uh rings are temporary structures i forget whether i read that that saturn's rings are are potentially you know will will go away at some point or whether that they're a little more stable than that but you know in general the thought is a lot of times you get breakups of material they form a ring they're in the ring for a while and then the ring kind of just uh, falls out Mm -hmm. but uh but hey mars might lose a moon and gain some jewelry so that's good there you go and the Question I saw on Twitter a couple other places, like, well, what does this mean for us, humanity, on Mars? We we spoke a little bit about that last time. And as from the ring perspective, it really shouldn't be a big deal. It'll be centered around the equator, and it should be, uh, it's believed, you know, if we're traveling to and from Mars, as if we're just going down to the 7-Eleven at that point, uh, it shouldn't be a big deal. But it's but still... it's millions of years away, so, you know, we would yeah. have to... You know, human all of all of human like civilization can be wrapped in about what ten to twenty thousand years. Yeah, so that, that question don't worry is not about it. something that's keeping me up at night, but people nope. were asking. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a long term problem for the you know computer brains that can go faster than light that will be our successors in a hundred million years. Right, and there's this uh, medium link in the show notes that kind of speaks to that uh, a little bit about the. You know, this time frame is big, and we shouldn't be afraid of something that is um, so far out. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not too worried, Jason. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's a relief. So we're going to go from uh, Phobos falling apart to uh, rockets falling apart, I guess is how I'm going to do this transition. Interesting. <laughs> there was a, a report out of the United Kingdom... Uh, last week, that some SpaceX debris launched up on the UK coast. It was originally thought 
Uh, in fact, when I put it in the show notes, it was thought that it was part of the Falcon 9 that exploded in June, but it turns out that it seems... Is that to, your explosion? It's my explosion. It's my Falcon 9 that blew up. Yeah. Uh, it's not my fault, but it happened when oh. I was there. Which is, Says you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. You were there. You were at the scene. That, you know, what I'm saying. I don't think that's how crime fighting works, Jason. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but this seems to be a piece of debris from a, uh, a previous uh, mission, maybe CSR-4. But it's interesting, you know, we think about, uh, we're going to talk more about rockets in a second, we think about these things as being used and they sort of go away. It's like, well, no, you know, all matter is is still around, right? The, it, it doesn't just disappear. And uh, this little bit washed up uh, across the pond. So there's a cool picture of it. As you would imagine, being in the ocean for some time, it is covered in all sorts of things that don't look very comfortable or tasty. But uh, there's a cool picture of it over on Gizmodo. We also sort of in rocket SpaceX uh, type news, uh, Blue Origin, which if if you're not familiar with, they are Blue Origin is a company owned by Jeff Bezos from Amazon. Yeah, Supervillain super Jeff Jeff Bezos. Yes. It's his secretive space company. Yeah, he makes really good charts that Jason's a big fan of. Yeah, that's right. Amount <laughs> number of secrets at Blue Origin lineup. Uh, yeah, Blue Origin. So. Uh, Elon Musk, you know, he's a very kind of open, likes to get his businesses in the media kind of guy. And Bezos has a different attack. I mean, Blue Origin, he's been like, they they, they just don't talk about it a lot. I mean, I I think calling it secretive at this point is probably unfair, but they don't talk about it a lot. But suddenly there is this video that comes out a couple weeks ago that is, uh, hey, look what we did today from Blue Origin. And they launched a rocket into space uh, not into orbit but above the what is 100 kilometer limit that that we've all kind of agreed is space and uh and then they i think they ejected a you know a little sample payload like this could be a capsule or uh, or another uh, you know another stage of the rocket but it's not and then the uh so then the rocket comes back down and lands at their west texas spaceport within a couple of yards of the target. <laughs> and if you haven't seen the video, you owe it to yourself to see it. Because it's kind of amazing. It's a little bit like what some of the Mars probe landings have been, um, but uh, with much with, with video coverage, because it was landing on Earth, right. where the computer is pinging the surface. It knows exactly how much further down it has to go. And it comes down at a fairly, especially since there's nobody in it, a fairly fast speed until it gets not too far from the ground. And then it fires the rockets and it slows and stops and lands. It's uh, pretty amazing. It, it really is. I watched it. Uh, and it, it, I mean, it is more or less in free fall before that, that rocket refires. And they're using the same ignition motor they use during liftoff, which is, um, part of this whole thing, right, of making these things simple and reusable brings the price down. And so it's it's just falling out of the sky, then all of a sudden it re- yeah. it relights and it uh it looks like something out of Iron Man almost where it just sort of it knows where it is and you can see it correcting and 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 it lands. And it's 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 news for a couple of reasons, right? It's one that Blue Origin has been not really covered as much as, as some other companies. They're in a lot of metrics behind uh some of its competitors. But they are the first ones, according to them, to land a reusable rocket. And that set off like a whole like drama on Twitter. <laughs> Elon Musk just rage tweeting about it. Uh, but SpaceX hasn't done it yet. They've been trying. They've had two attempts. They, they're using a drone ships. So they cruise out into the ocean and yeah. then they crash land on. Um, also amazing video footage. Um, you see this yeah. giant uh, 
one of them actually, I think, touched down, then tipped over and, and exploded. Yep. But they, SpaceX has now said that they're going to try to do this on land, that they want to do it at the Cape. So Blue Origin yeah. did it out in the middle of nowhere in Texas. SpaceX wants to try it <laughs> in Florida at the Space Center, um, which should be an uh, interesting video either way. So, Yeah, I mean, this is super important, like you said, because uh, even though a lot of our spacecraft have been reusable for a while... Uh, the space shuttle being the best example. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But, you know, other capsules have been in the past designed for potential reuse. The reality is, is a lot of stuff doesn't get reused. And the analogy that I think is a fair one that keeps coming up is, imagine how expensive airline travel would be if you could only use the planes once, right? I mean, you need to be able to use this stuff. And not just the where, not just the, the craft, but the rockets. You need to reuse them. And although parts of the space shuttle, not the... Uh, not the main tank, but the solid rocket boosters, they they could be recovered and reused. It was not a particularly economical process. They were, um, you know, they would have to fish them out of the ocean and do a lot of refurb to them. So it was not necessarily, uh, even though it was a savings, it was not a great savings. Right. The whole idea here is if you can just land the thing, you still have to recondition it and stuff, but basically it, it, you can reduce the turnaround time and costs, and that's going to be necessary for routine commercial space flight. So this is a big step. It's, uh, you know, there was a back and forth between Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk about the, uh, you know, Musk is trying to make an orbital uh, you know, orbital trajectory land back at the Cape, but their tests have been with suborbital, just like, uh, just like Blue Origin, and those failed. So, um, you know, it, it's uh, but it's good. This is all good because in the end, this is the stuff we need to see. We need they need to be able to do this and not you know, disposable rockets were something that you made for these, you know, for literally moonshots, <laughs> but uh, for routine space flight, you need more. Uh, reusability so it's a cool cool video too but it also says something about where um where commercial space stuff is going right what i like about it too and something that is unique in this era of commercial flight is that this stuff is done out in the open right like they were successful and they they posted the video spacex who is at two failures still posted the video still writing about it still talking about it and it's out in the open it's not being done yeah. by the air force off in a base in nevada no one can ever go to it is being done in a way that is is being shared with the with the open community so it's just it's just a lot of fun to follow along and um and it it, like you said it is key to the this future in which we see uh space travel and space exploration being more important that cost has to come down it has to be more economic to do or it's or the pace won't ever pick up yeah we're never we're never going to be able to mine asteroids if we can't reduce the uh, barriers to entry of getting to space to mine the asteroids. Well, thankfully, Congress took care of the legal part of that for you this week. <laughs> yeah, there, there was so so uh, so the uh, the House and Senate passed a bill that was signed by the president. Um, I think maybe last week that was um, that is uh, it was HR twenty two sixty two. I think, but basically, it, it is a it's a whole raft of space stuff that got through. Congress and got signed by the president and it does a bunch of stuff. It extends uh, actually com- uh, going back to our international space station conversations that we've had extends the life of the international space station to 2024, I believe officially funding it to that point. And there uh, I found a couple articles where they're talking about thinking that the life of the space station is probably going to extend to about 2028. So that's nice. So it's a, it's a new lease on life for the, for the international space station. Uh, so that's in there. 
Uh, there's a thing that says the FAA doesn't have to regulate space, uh, commercial space travel for the next decade, which I think everybody who's in private space is happy about, that um, the FAA has control over um, uh, over uh, airplanes, but not spaceships yet. It probably will at some point, but not yet. And then the big thing in there, I think, is this sort of like you find it, you, you keep it <laughs> provision for space, which is... If you um, get materials or minerals or whatever in outer space, basically what this law says is, as far as the U.S. is concerned, you own them, you possess them. And this is there are some startups that are talking about doing uh, doing asteroid mining. The idea is that you know right now all of our mining, all of our resources are on planet Earth. We have a limited set. There is what is in the Earth, and that's it. A little bit of junk kind of falls on Earth from space, but nothing worth worth measuring it's the stuff we've got and when we run out of the stuff we've got that's all there is and there are a lot of rare minerals that are very hard to get to and the thought is that a lot of that stuff is out in space there's a lot more stuff uh, there on the moon but especially at asteroids where you don't even have a lot of gravity to get to the moon you have to land and then and then take back off but asteroids are big chunks of rock and ice um, and and have lots of valuable minerals, both for things that we want back on Earth, like gold and platinum and palladium and a whole bunch of rare rare Earth uh, elements that you, that it's speculated you can find on asteroids. But also, um, there's stuff out there that could be really useful for space travelers, like uh, like oxygen and water and uh, propellant, so that you don't have to bring your return gas tank with you. You can fill up based on stuff you, you when you get to your destination. So basically, there's a lot of uh, this is probably sort of mid to late 21st century stuff before this becomes relevant. But um, it is a first step there in saying, look, if you are building a company that is investing in the hopes that you're going to end up being able to mine minerals from an asteroid and bring it back to Earth, um, you get OK, we will say that when you get that stuff, you can keep it. Right. And there is a caveat that they these companies cannot uh, they don't have any rights, I should say, to any biological organisms that may be found. Yes. So if we yes, do if, find if, life somewhere, it um, doesn't it isn't owned by who finds it. <laughs> right. It's, it's it's not. Yeah. That that is not a possession. Exactly. The space, your space, uh, space molds, your space bacteria whatever you find uh, that that doesn't count. Space monkeys. Mm hmm. They're like sea monkeys. You just add space. <laughs> <laughs> and there are monkeys. Um, we have a, a little news in uh, in the spacecraft corner as well. We've got um, two Japanese probes. Yeah. This is, goes to, goes to our. It's not just about NASA here at liftoff. Um, there's a lot of lot lot of Japanese probe drama happening right now. There's Hayabusa two, which is the so so Hayabusa was a was a, a an um, asteroid probe that the Japanese space agency launched. Hayabusa two is the next one it's it's a it's a sample return mission so they're going to go to an asteroid they're going to get some stuff see they, they and finders keepers they get to keep it the u.s government says that's a-okay bring it back to earth so we can analyze what's on these asteroids uh, you know let, let's let's get an actual sample it's pretty cool um now to do it there are a lot of orbital orbital mechanics stuff in order to get where you need to go in the solar system and one of the ways you do it is you send the ship out and then you have them come past a planet right and and that gives uh that gives a boost to their speed and um Hayabusa 2 did that around the earth so we we launched it it went out it came back and and is uh and and is getting a boost from the earth to send it off to where it needs to go um and that's kind of cool because you get stuff like pictures of the earth and the moon from space from kind of far enough that you can see the earth and the moon together in one shot mm -hmm. 
That's pretty cool. And we'll put a link in the show notes. Our 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 friend, friend of the show, Emily Lactawala, um, did a nice post where you can you can see the pictures um on the Planetary Society. And then um actually I saw on Twitter today a bunch of posts from uh from people in japan and from the japanese space agency where they got their telescopes out and they have some shots of of the streak of uh hayabusa 2 flying by because it was only like three thousand kilometers at its closest point 3100 kilometers from uh from the earth so it was a you know it was a close pass and they actually were able to get uh shots of it as it as it kind of zoomed past which is a lot of fun so that's hayabusa 2 uh, which is on its way to its asteroid meeting. Um, and then there's Akatsuki, which is the Venus probe. And I, I don't know if we talked about this before, but this it's a, it's a great story, actually. Um, it's kind of amazing. So Akatsuki was, it's a, a climate, it's like a, an atmospheric orbiter for Venus. And uh, its thrusters didn't go off when it was supposed to park in orbit around Venus. So it flew past and ended up in a long solar orbit because it it didn't break itself, and uh, well, it broke itself. Yeah, it it was it, it had a failure and it missed. Yeah, yeah, it had an engine failure of the main thruster. So so basically, it missed. And they're like, oh well, you know, a lot of times you that's the end, right? But they they crunched the numbers and they 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 uh, worked the problem. They looked at the the main thruster and realized it was not going to work. They actually bled off all the all the propellant from it to make it lighter and then they thought they could use their maneuvering thrusters with the with the lighter craft with all that all that uh propellant uh removed to uh to very slowly with a series like a crazy number over the last year of different adjustments to its trajectory get to the point where it can be uh inserted in a venus orbit after all it's gonna go on uh i think it's this week um I, uh, Tuesday maybe so like the day after we post this it is going to fire its uh its maneuvering thrusters one one last time basically and go into orbit ideally around Venus the it's not you know it's not the ideal orbit it's like every seven or eight days it will pass by close to Venus and then it's got this long elliptical orbit so it's not ideal they can only make observations every seven or eight days from close in to Venus but I love this story because it is one of those cases of space scientists working the problem and figuring out how to salvage a mission that would otherwise have completely failed because of this um, the, the broken thruster and uh, it's cool so there's a, some high drama in space for Akatsuki and the uh, and the Japanese space agency, but it looks like they might actually salvage this thing and get it in uh, orbit. And and it would be uh, the last Venus orbiter got uh, decommissioned and and crashed into the surface. So um, this would be this would get a, a human presence back around Venus, which is kind of cool too. It is so space uh, Japanese spacecraft are, are out there. They're doing stuff. Yeah, I, I love the story of that. Of of hey, you know, we're not just going to take this as a loss. We're going to see if we can turn it around and. Um... Well, you're going a direction you don't expect to go. You don't have your main thruster. Yeah. It's like, can we do anything here? And the answer was, yeah, you know, I think we could do this. And th- this is what they're doing now. So hopefully they will make that last burn and uh, and end up, uh, you know, around Venus. That would be pretty awesome. Yep. And it's I think it's unclear of how long that mission could take place because obviously they have used a lot of energy Yeah. Uh, yeah. both in missing and then returning to Venus. And so it's... The, it's the, until the batteries run out, basically, right. they don't even know. But they're getting something out of it, which I think is great. It is. Um, so we've talked a lot about exoplanets uh, in the past, and it turns out that some of them may be imposters, Jason. 
Yeah, it's it's a little story, but it's an interesting story that uh, and analyzing the data. The thing about the the Kepler. Uh, satellite and its data about exoplanets is that there's a lot of checking and rechecking of the data because it's this really trying to find signal amid the noise is is uh, hard and uh, there was a report that said that it could be that up to half of the very large exoplanets that it's found may be um false positives mm-hmm. Uh, it was felt that they were maybe you know originally maybe like 10 percent false positives but it might be as much as uh as 50 percent or more um, and this is by you know further analysis of the data, and that's you know I think it's I think it's a good uh, I think it's a good thing that um, this data is still being checked, and this is a cutting edge of uh, it's a cutting edge of science here, and we don't know we're still learning, and it's good to have people checking the data and saying maybe maybe not, and uh, you know nobody's saying that exoplanets are fake, but uh, it is interesting to analyze the the Kepler data and have them say. Um, you know, how many, how many of these things may or may not be real, especially of the very large ones that are very close. Um, so basically rechecking that huge amount of Kepler data and, uh, and analyzing it and making sure that we're really sure that all the planets we see are planets. And that matters because we take a certain, it's like a survey. We're taking a survey of solar systems and how prevalent are these kinds of planets. And if half of what we're seeing are false positives, then that changes our view of, of how prevalent, obviously, because then they're a lot less prevalent than we thought. Right. And it's it's a it's an example, as is this next story, about, you know, we have this data set and it, and going back over it with new information, new knowledge and new tools can yield new information out of it, which is just part of part of the process. Right. It's this stuff is not uh, fixed. It's not that it's decided upon and then never looked at again. It's that new information comes in and, and scientists can reevaluate what's been done in the past, and what's been captured in the past. And then we can uh, learn uh, learn new things. Yeah. So this story from National Geographic is, is, I think, is a pretty interesting example of that. You know, we scientists have known for some time that these uh, radio waves uh, are detected on Earth, and they they last very fast. I think several thousands of a second. A very just quick little burst of yeah. radio wave, and they've been um, it's been captured and understood. You know that we see these things. You know what it is. But it seems to me that there may be some some answers now uh, as far as where these radio waves are coming from. Yes, and once again, we have to say, not aliens. Um, and this is actually a case where the analysis of the data suggests uh, very clearly that they're not they're not aliens because people are like, oh, it's radio signals from aliens somewhere, and um, and now analyzing the data, uh, these people. It uh well let's see the the telescopes in West Virginia it's Green Bank and then it's a scientist from University of British Columbia so um it's a whole like complicated uh, chain but the the idea here is that by by analyzing the radio waves they are um, realizing that they are from very far away they mined the data they they uh of a, of a particular burst they looked at like the polarization of the radio waves and they were able to determine that it had to be um very far away like uh 6 billion light years mm-hmm. it's it's very far away it's not in it's not in the milky way galaxy um and they think it is you know it's passing through um interesting regions that have um 
high, huge magnetic fields. So, you know, it, it's one of those things where we still don't know what they are, but we have, a, we have an idea more of what they must have, where they must have passed through and how far away they must have come. And I think that's kind of a cool just example of science um, reducing the number of possibilities. So it's like not that they know exactly where they come from, but they know more about them, and that's uh, that's pretty awesome. It is. It's uh, not not aliens again. We just keep bringing out that fine print. Now Enrico Fermi uh, remains uh, his paradox remains intact. We uh, we don't we don't know where the aliens are if they're even out there. So we're going to spend the rest of this episode talking about the space shuttle program. I think is uh, going to be exciting. Uh, but first, I want to tell you that this episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Luminos, the all-in-one mobile astronomy app for iPad, iPhone, and even Apple Watch. In development for more than 10 years, Luminos brings the power of desktop astronomy programs to your mobile device. There are more stargazing apps uh, that let you go out and identify targets in the sky, but Luminos goes above and beyond to create accurate models of millions of astronomical objects. Intrigued by a comet or a satellite overhead with a single tap, you can launch and ride along an animated 3D. Luminos gives you advanced tools to discover the best viewing targets at your location right now or in the future. So you know, hey, I'm going to be out uh, somewhere next weekend. I want to see what I can see. Luminos can tell you in advance what will be uh, viewable from your location. Wobbleworks is a family business with more than 50 years of software experience, and they've crafted Luminos to delight current astronomy fans and create new ones. The app includes detailed planet and moon maps, tens of thousands of asteroids and comets, millions of stars, wireless telescope control, and more. You can even view live sky charts on your Apple Watch. Luminos is available at one low price with no paid upgrades and no in-app purchases. In its fifth year of free feature updates, Wobbleworks has added more than 13,000 precisely aligned deep space images and both current and historical meteor showers. More Luminos updates are on the way soon. Go find out more. Go check it out at wobbleworks.com. Thank you so much to Luminos for supporting Liftoff and all of Relay FM. Yeah. Space Shuttle, Jason. Space shuttle. Space shuttle. So we're going to talk. How does it work? Well, I can tell you. Oh. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the program, kind of how it came into being, talk about the hardware, talk about some missions. Um, but uh, people may be surprised that the, the shuttle program itself is actually, um, the pieces of it sort of started picking up steam uh, during the Apollo days. There was an idea for a space transportation system that would be composed of numerous parts. So there would be a reusable orbiter, which became the shuttle. There would be a space tug, a ferry, space station, kind of this complete system uh, to to get people and stuff to low Earth orbit and back. Uh, but it was, as you might imagine, crazy expensive. And so only really phase one, the... Uh, the orbiter ever saw the light of day. Yeah, this, it seems to me that this was definitely a a system designed with the idea that, um, I don't know that, that, uh, we had become so comfortable going places like the moon, that this was going to be a logical next step was to create a routine space plane. Basically that was, that was the idea, um, which, you know, among the criticisms of the space shuttle, which we will get to later, is the idea that it doesn't really go anywhere. It's just low Earth orbit. Um, but I think the bigger one is that 
this was something that was intended to be a re- create the next step was if we, if we weren't going to go to Mars or back to the moon and we weren't going to have a permanent space station then then at least what the what the STS was going to do was allow us to add routine access to space to the list and in the end what happened was it was it was our for a long time it was our only space thing and it wasn't routine uh, and that that was, uh, I think, one of the big problems with it. But you know, you can see from the vantage of being in the Apollo era why this might be something that you'd want to do as part of a a space strategy. It just sort of turned out differently than anyone expected. Right. Um, and from the very beginning, that we have a, a link to an early drawing from North American Rockwell. The idea of it launching like a rocket, gliding like a plane back to Earth, and again being reusable, like we talked about earlier, these commercial programs. Those same principles are what guided or what tried to guide the shuttle program of having something, hey, we can we can launch it, we can use it, we can bring it back, we can rehab it, we can do it, um, we can do it all over again. But kind of from the very beginning, the shuttle program had, uh, there was conflict, right? There's, there's always stress in these things. And a, a big point of contention from what I've been reading is the U.S. Air Force got involved um, because there was budgetary concerns of this thing's going to be really expensive and it needs to have more than one application, if you will. And so Air Force got involved, but they wanted something larger and more powerful because they wanted to launch basically spy satellites out of it. And this had a lot of trade-offs that came with it. It meant that uh, those solid rocket boosters uh, were added. They had to use an external fuel tank all making it more complicated and less reusable. Um, but also meant that there are, just from 1982 to 1992, there are 11 classified shuttle missions, which is crazy to think about. Like, you know the shuttle launch because it's on the news, and you can, if you're in Florida, you can go out and see it. But uh, no one knows what they did or what they flew, which is, um, I just I find that a little interesting tidbit in looking through this. Yeah, this is like gov- government bureaucracy at its worst, too, yeah. where it's like, you know, this thing that was supposed to be reusable and gave us access to space for all sorts of things gets hijacked a little bit by the military that wants to have it be something else. And, you know, from the perspective of today, we look at this and say, guys, why why are you using a human crewed uh, vehicle to launch satellites, <laughs> right? right? I mean, it makes sense for things that where you really need to uh, very like modify things or repair things like the Hubble Space Telescope. But for like a spy satellite, why not just launch the spy satellite? Why do you need people up there to launch the spy satellite? And I think the idea was, well, this is how we get to space. It's going to be routine. They're going to do 50 of these a year. Why wouldn't we put all of our satellite launches into it? But in hindsight, the whole idea that you would use something, a machine as complicated and expensive as the space shuttle to launch satellites uh, seems kind of absurd. But at the time, you know, this is what they thought. But ironically, the decisions they made because of uh, the assumptions about uh, the the reusability and the frequency of the space shuttle ended up leading to it not being able to do those things. Exactly. Um, and, you know, you talk about it being crewed. Obviously, the shuttle was crewed for its entire time. In fact, it's the only, this still blows my mind, the only maiden test flight of a new U.S. spacecraft to carry a crew. Now, instead of a full crew uh, two astronauts were involved. Um, they did several John, test flights. John Young and Robert Crippen, yes. Yeah, those guys, hats off to you gentlemen, uh, <laughs> climb on board something that has not been tested with humans. And they, they had, of course, tested components of it. I mean, lots of uh, test firing of the of the engines. They had the 
Um, they had the Enterprise. Actually, they basically just dropped out of the sky to like, hey, let's yeah. see if you can land a shuttle. Um, yep. But there, there's, there was no way because it was such a such a complex machine. There was no way to to pilot it automatically. You had to have a crew. And um, so that that STS one that first mission, uh, we've got a, a, a link uh, to that. There, there's a photo on the show page of actually the that first launch. It's really a, a, an incredible. Uh, incredible thing that it was. Um, yeah. No, I, I remember um, you were born the day that the the the, the Challenger accident happened, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But um, I remember the STS one launch. I remember it clearly. I, I remember. I, I mean, I remember the Enterprise glide test, but I remember STS one clearly. I was ten years old, um, and a super space fan, and I I remember you know Young Crippen became like those guys were. Those those guys were legends, and only later did I realize like Young was in the um, in the Apollo program. Um, you know, he had he had stuck around a long time, as did a few other astronauts to get that to get that chance. And you know, they're test pilots, and it was just the two of them, and not the sort of seven crew that we would come to expect later. And uh, yeah, kind of amazing. Memorialized now that mission by um, uh, fans of the Canadian band Rush will know that there's a song called Countdown. That is really awesome. That uses um, audio from the Kennedy Space Center and from on uh, STS one, uh, and it's all about the launch. Which because the the Rush uh, guys are huge space fans, and they were at the launch, I believe, and wrote a song about <laughs> it from their seminal album Signals. So check that out. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to the Wikipedia page about it. And uh, yeah, and when I was at the STS one thirty five launch, I got to I got to meet uh, uh, Bob Crippen. Pretty awesome to see him because again, that is somebody that I, I, I knew I knew that name from when I was ten years old, and it was like that is the guy who flew the first space shuttle. Amazing! It's pretty cool. Um, the the shuttle itself, the shuttle stack has three main components. Of course, you had the the orbiter itself, uh, which uh, again is very airplane like in appearance. It's got it. It doesn't look like a capsule, right? It looks, it's got wings. Space plane. It's got, a, it's got a glide. <laughs> yep. In atmosphere when it lands. Uh, so you have the orbiter. You have the solid rocket boosters trapped either side. These these tall white uh, rockets that uh, I think to date are still the most powerful rockets um, or most powerful solid rocket boosters ever oh. ever flown. Um, and then you have the external fuel tank, which a lot of photos of the shuttle you see is that sort of classic burnt orange look, but. Uh, those early missions, they were painting it white. Um, <laughs> That's not the classic look. The classic look is white, but they realized that the paint was was too heavy, uh, and and so once they got enough PR photos of the white tank, they just stopped painting it. Uh, so out of that, two of the three were reusable. The orbiter obviously was reusable. The solid rocket boosters were reusable to a degree, um, but the external fuel tank was one and done. It would uh, be. Filled with fuel, the fuel would be used during launch, and it would be jettisoned, and then break up and uh, hit the Pacific Ocean and go away forever. Yeah, yeah. I think people would. Uh, I think people misunderstand. Well, maybe we'll talk about the more about the engines in a bit. But I think people misunderstand the external tank too. But it, it, it was uh, not. It was an interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. But we'll get to it. The the orbiters. There's uh, family family of orbiters, not just one. We already spoke about the Enterprise, which was used for the approach and landing test. It was um, simplified. It had no motors. It was used for 
you know, yeah. studying things like how do you land it? How does it operate in the atmosphere? Wind tunnel testing. Uh, it was used, I believe, for some uh, training uh, after this stuff. And eventually, more or less got parted out. Enterprise is still around, but uh, basically all of its goodies got stripped away over the years as other orbiters needed them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they used it. They used it partially as a uh, as a backup, uh, and uh, yeah, it was the test where they did. They wanted to see how it flew, and so they built it. It's funny because Star Trek fans were the ones who basically got it to be named the Enterprise, and this is one of the colossal, classic screw ups of Star Trek fans. <laughs> Uh, in history because they got the they got the one that didn't go into yeah. space named enterprise it's so oh so yeah. sad and after the after the challenger disaster they talked about um whether they could retrofit right. enterprise and it turned out that it was so uh not what was required that they were better off using the, all of the backup parts basically and assembling another mm-hmm. orbiter from sort of the backups of the backup parts that they had of other orbiters rather than retrofitting the enterprise so it was really not space suitable at any point Right. Um, we also had Columbia, Challenger, Discovery, and Atlantis. Uh, that rounded out those those originals. And then, like you said, Endeavor was built to replace Challenger. Yeah, and they all rolled out. I mean, Columbia was the STS-1 uh, mission, and Challenger and Columbia were the first yes. two shuttles to be built. So they, they for a while there, um, I don't have the list in front of me, but for a while there, my recollection is that it was Columbia and Challenger, and then Discovery came online, and then Atlantis came online. But it took it took time uh for the fleet to to roll out because you know they're building these four uh four spacecraft mm-hmm. in fact the first five flights were columbia um so yeah it, it, it was a a sort of a staggered rollout if you will yeah uh discovery didn't didn't launch until uh number 12 so the first 11 were columbia and challenger columbia did the first four then Ta- Challenger did three, then Columbia, then two more for Challenger. And only then did uh, Discovery get into the mix. And Atlantis didn't make its first flight until 85, number 21. So, um, you know, there, w- there, was, there was time for uh, between 81 and, and 85. It, it took time for each of these orbiters to come on, uh, on to active duty. Mm-hmm. And the the orbiters all differed from one another a little bit. Like you said, part of that was from the just the time it took to build them and get them rolled out and get them into service, where Atlantis has some things the earlier ones didn't. But then over the course of the program, they were all updated at different times for different types of things. So Right. So they go they like not fly for a while and they do a like a total overhaul and then bring it back. Right. Exactly. Um and again you have this this family of vehicles that you can Again, the theory was be able to to fly much more often than they did, but it ended up, and we'll get into it, the the rehabbing of these things after a mission just took a lot of time and a lot of money. Yeah, the, yeah. The whole idea was that if you have four of these orbiters, uh, you could you could launch them, you know, you could launch them every week. Yeah, that that was the original pitch to Congress: <laughs> weekly flights. Which, and then now the cool thing about it was they had this concept of um of like uh like the alternate mission where you would have one in prep as one was going and that if there was an emergency they actually had the capability to launch theoretically to launch a shuttle mm-hmm. to rescue the other shuttle right um but yeah in in practical terms it just didn't work right um part of that turnaround time was based on the the engines on the orbiter it had three main engines 
The RS-25 is the name of that motor. Uh, that name should be familiar to you. It is being used at the bottom of the SLS, SLS stack. Um, but those motors had yeah. to be removed after every launch and inspected. The earlier ones, they had to like rebuild basically every time. Um, but the, the Orbiter itself had those three main engines. And then, of course, you had the SRBs, which were, uh, again, strapped to the sides, and they were jettisoned after, being, uh, after expending their fuel and uh, picked up out in the Atlantic Ocean by the, uh, the U.S. Navy. I actually have a good friend of mine uh, served in the Navy in the 90s and uh, actually was on board a ship, and they went out there, and went, uh, he was on board when they towed back um, a set of SRBs from a, from a space sort of launch. And basically, they would be out in the ocean, they'd be floating uh, upright, um, and basically, you just go cast out your fishing line, and uh, they would bring them back and and reuse basically the shells. Uh, you know, a lot of the material was damaged. They had to redo the insides, but the, again, some amount of reusability in these things. Right. And the, the this is the famous silhouette that we all know for the space shuttle. Um, when I said earlier, one of the things people misunderstand is that they think that the external tank was a rocket. Mm-hmm. And it's not. It's just a fuel tank, yep. and it's feeding the shuttle's engines. And the way the SRBs work is once they're ignited, you can't turn them off. There's no control of them, but they're incredibly powerful. So the the way we think of the shuttle launch, the shuttle launch is the SRBs and the shuttle main engines all launching. Right. The SRBs burn out and and are dropped, and those are recovered. And that's that moment when the shuttle, you know, the, they pop off the sides, and the shuttle keeps on going. And what happens is the shuttle has got it's still pulling fuel from the from the external tank and and that is what it's riding to 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 orbit uh, you know the the uh, SRBs have given it the boost but they're left behind and it and it drains that external tank and at that point the external tank when it's empty it gets jettisoned it breaks up because you're you're already kind of out in space and it's going to break up and burn up um but uh, and then the shuttle scott obviously it's on board fuel tanks that it uses for the rest of the mission. But, um, you know, there's no engines on that, on that main tank, the engines it's, it's, it's tied into the shuttle and the, the shuttle's engines are, are unloading the fuel in the main tank before it, uh, before it, uh, jettisons that and then uses its own gas tank. So it's a, it's kind of a cool combination of things, but it's also complicated. And we, as we mentioned, this, this makes it all just that much more complicated. <laughs> Very complicated. Um, also the SRBs are in, if you look at the, yeah, the space launch system, the, you know, it, it looks suspiciously like a space shuttle without a shuttle, because that's one of the things they've done is they've got, not only do they have essentially the uh, external tank from the shuttle with engines on the bottom of it that are basically space shuttle engines, but it's got the two, it's got two uh, solid rocket boosters on the sides that are essentially space shuttle SRBs. So it's a case where knowledge of propulsion from the space shuttle is actually informing the, uh, the rocket that will be used for future NASA stuff, it's just that unlike on the space shuttle where it was strapped to the the, the back of it, um, the all the extra stuff will be on top of the of the stack, which is much safer um, and uh, much more straightforward than the shuttle system was. Yep, absolutely. The um, one reason the shuttle was so complicated, we keep going back to that word, was the thermal protection needed. So if you think about a a capsule like Orion that's being built now, or even Apollo. And, and previous uh, previous hardware, the, you basically had one surface that needed to be protected that took the brunt of the thermal impact. When you come back from space and hit the atmosphere, uh, lots of friction, you have ionized material building up 
on the craft, and that can cause serious damage, uh, as we find out in this episode, it, it did uh, do serious damage to a shuttle. But the shuttle's not a capsule, right? It, it's it's a glider. And so they had to build this extremely complicated heat shield thermal protection system, the TPS, thermal protection system, made up of things like tiles, and they used fabrics and all these different tools to protect the bottom and leading edges of the shuttle from the heat of reentry. Yeah, and this and this is a and those tiles are crazy. I mean, the, the famous the famous thing for the tiles is they would hold a tile and a blowtorch, and they would and they would heat the tile. They would they run the blowtorch over the tile and then immediately remove the blowtorch to- and you touch it. Yep, I, and it wasn't I did hot. It. <laughs> we did it at the NASA social <laughs> event that I went to, and you're holding a tile and the guy is like, "Don't move," and he's hitting a blowtorch on the other side, and this thing is only inches thick. The the properties of this material are just unbelievable, but as much uh, heat and energy as it can absorb, it basically just cracks and chips away. Like it, it, they're they're very strong in very particular ways, but actually very physically very fragile. And so tiles would be damaged during flight. They'd be damaged uh, moving the orbiter or working on the orbiter. I read one story uh, of uh, in the eighties, a, te- a technician had like a tool bag or something fall and damage some tiles. And there was like a big in, like investigation. They changed some of their workflows around that. So tools were more uh, securely fastened when not in use. I mean, this thing was, was basically just wrapped in this uh, 24,000 tiles per shuttle, roughly give or take. Um, and just all those had to be inspected. And if they were damaged, repaired or replaced by hand, yeah. uh, during uh, that that rehab time for an orbiter, yeah, and it turned out that the, there was much more uh, tile repair work that needed to be done again than they thought. So, oops, more more work, but pretty uh, it's a pretty cool idea, and that's how you get the reusable reentry vehicle is by having this kind of amazing uh, material attached on the bottom. Yep. Um. So I think that kind of wraps up the the big um like shuttle hardware. So you got the orbiter, fuel tank, and SRBs. And so now we're going to move into kind of what uh, what NASA was able to do with this this hardware. Um, there were a bunch, obviously, uh, I think 135 flights, a um, bunch of missions, a bunch of stuff that was everything from uh, really landmark missions like Hubble Telescope, and building the International Space Station to sort of more routine um, science and discovery type missions that, you know, maybe aren't going to end up on the front page of the newspaper, but still built, you know, those building blocks of what we know about living in orbit today. But there are some some notable ones. Um, I, I think the first the first one I came across was Space Lab. Yeah, this is like the um, the counter argument to... Uh, using it as a satellite spy satellite launch tool, <laughs> which is, uh, and I always like this idea, and they didn't use it as much as I really uh, hoped they would, which is it's a module that goes in the cargo bay, attaches to the airlock, and is just there for science. So it basically turns the whole cargo bay of the shuttle, because it was built like a pickup truck with this, you know, the... the the, the the back of it was for cargo, essentially. You could plug this thing into it, and it was like a camper for the space shuttle, <laughs> right? You use that space for living instead of for your cargo, and that was what Space Lab was. Yep, and um, that that cargo bay would really be uh, 
a very versatile tool. And again, that's that's the area the Air Force wanted wanted in large, but there there were good trade offs there too. Um, shuttle was used to service um, uh, not only the International Space Station, not only help build the International Space Station, but also service the Mir Space Station. Yeah, um, there were some Mir connection stuff that they did. Yeah, um, the Hubble. I think Hubble is the like number one accomplishment of of not only that they launched it, but that they fixed it multiple times. And the Hubble was an expensive instrument, and yeah, famously. It was part of it was built wrong and they had to fix it. But the fact was uh, they could fix it and they did fix it. And in fact, in one of the final space shuttle missions, they went back and swapped in a whole bunch of new instruments to give it even longer life. And the Hubble Space Telescope is arguably, we'll have to do an episode on it at some point, Hubble Space Telescope, arguably the greatest scientific instrument ever created by human beings. It is what it has, and again, there are lots of great scientific instruments, sorry if I didn't pick your favorite, but it has done some amazing things and uh, and has lasted a long time and would have given us v- not nothing, but not a lot compared to what it has, if it weren't for the fact that it was serviceable by the space shuttle. And the fact that it is still active today is because it got that final service mission that sort of through public acclaim, um, it got prioritized when it was initially not going to happen. So, you know, Hubble, you know, I remember watching, and this is when, back when CNN covered space a lot, because the story is, it, it actually just saw a tweet um, last week from Miles O'Brien, who was a space correspondent at CNN, now he's at PBS. Uh, talking about how he left CNN, I think seven years ago, and uh, how he, he he it turned out to be the best thing that had ever happened to him. But you know, CNN used to be good at space because Ted Turner owned CNN and he was a space nut. And Ted Turner is not involved in CNN anymore, and uh, so they don't care. But there was a time when CNN prioritized space stuff because Ted Turner owned it mm-hmm. and said, "You will prioritize this." And I remember watching endlessly too it just they, it, they didn't break away endlessly watching the hubble space telescope servicing mission on in like 92 or something uh 93 uh, whenever that whenever that first big servicing mission was and it was it was kind of endlessly fascinating you've got you've got a couple of um astronauts working in space on this instrument that they're going to try to improve and bring back to life we brought equipment with us from earth that's going to take this existing satellite and make it more valuable it's just and so so cool that and i think so in the public consciousness that this of course is the basis for the opening scenes of the movie gravity it it essentially is a hubble space telescope servicing mission that then goes horribly wrong um and that's uh that's because you know that that the reality of that was so good that they could use the use that as the basis for what they were doing Mm -hmm. it is i I agree with you it and thinking about the shuttle as a whole i think that is for a lot of people i think it is for me too the sort of the the high point um not only for like what you're talking about like the ingenuity and like uh, there's a story about having trouble with the latches on the outside of the spacecraft and basically uh some improvisation to help keep it closed and like all this like yeah. human ingenuity but also we we have i mean to this day these amazing images um that that we would never have had if they if it could have been repaired um it's really right. amazing we got a bunch of links in the show notes about about those servicing missions um and just for a second uh, about iss i mean i just wanted to mention I, I suppose you could have constructed iss without the shuttle but the shuttle was really material and the fact that they could bring modules with them and attach them together and really build huge chunks of the iss using space shuttle astronauts and the robot arm 
uh, is, uh, which is not a robot, according to John Syracuse, but still, the Can- Canada arm, the Canadian arm, um, that, that is a huge part of the building of the International Space Station. So that's I, I'd put that as a feather in its cap, although I think at the end of the space shuttle's lifetime, it was also a burden that, um, you know, it, it, they had to, I, I think NASA felt... In, they had to keep up their responsibilities with the space station and they had to use the shuttle, even though the shuttle was probably not the ideal vehicle to keep doing those missions. They kind of made the promise so they had to deliver, but still they built the thing. I think it's pretty impressive. Oh, abs- I mean, absolutely. Um, there are also three probes uh, launched from the cargo bays of space shuttles that, that I think are worth mentioning uh, Magellan, which we still got a Venus probe earlier uh, uh, was a probe sent to, to our neighbor planet, uh, Galileo, mm-hmm. which photographed Jupiter and its moons. Um, yeah, Galileo was a great, great one, and that came out of the cargo bay. That's pretty cool. Yep. And then uh, Ulysses, which orbited the uh, orbited the sun. So a lot of scientific stuff, not only in low Earth orbit, but well beyond uh, using the the shuttle as a jumping off point for this these uh, yeah. spacecraft. So we we talked a little bit kind of here and there about some criticism of the space shuttle program and um I think it's I think it's important to put it to talk about to put it into context of the program overall because it was a very long very expensive program uh and the cost I think is sort of the big uh one of the big ones here um I think these figures are in 2011 dollars, but 196 billion spent on the shuttle program, which is about 1.5 billion dollars per launch, which is uh, expensive. And uh, a lot of people felt um, was a price tag that wasn't really clearly defined beforehand. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. It was. Well, I mean, this is the, if you have to boil it down, it was they couldn't launch as many as they thought, cost way more than they thought. And that's the problem is this was this was a we built this as a space pickup truck to make it easy to get to space and and relatively cheap to get to space so that we would have human access and be able to launch satellites and spot and spy satellites and fixed telescopes and all of that. And in the end, it was kind of infrequent and super expensive. Yep. Um, I've got side. Yeah. yeah. I've got two images. And uh, if you look at them kind of side by side, it's really amazing. It was uh, the idea of what the ground processing would look like of what it would take to to uh check over and repair a shuttle after use and then there's a photo of the actual ground processing <laughs> which you can't <laughs> even you can see the nose of the orbiter sticking out i don't even know which orbiter this is you can't tell uh because it's completely encased in a multi-story structure with dozens of people working on it um, right whereas the other one is like in a really big garage yeah it's like just uh, we got a you know there's a walking platform around it and there's somebody underneath who's you know checking the tire pressure but <laughs> it's cool it's not a problem yeah and in fact it was like a it was a giant lattice of beams with a shuttle shaped hole in the middle yeah uh, <sighs> and that obviously was a was a huge factor in the expense of just the manpower yeah and the this the the sheer amount of time it took to to do this and you know you got to have a place to do it in and you go out to the space center and they have these buildings um with uh doors and then they have uh and the wall above the door have a a slot cut for the the tail of the orbiter to pass through um but uh you know there but something more important than the budget and the time of course is is the safety um like we said many shuttles had tps damage um 
And the the failure rate of of the orbiters itself, like I mean, we've had a small family of them, and two of them failed, um, and people lost their lives. is a is a very serious, and I think a very uh, interesting criticism of the program. Yep, um, I think, and and then there's the there's the big one, right, which is um, safety. Uh, you know, bottom bottom line, I I did the math. Uh, 1.5% of shuttle missions end in the complete loss of the crew. Yeah. That's, um, it's not acceptable. Um, nope. So- <laughs> that, that, you know, that, 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 uh, people were wondering, they always were wondering, well, how, what is the actual failure rate of the shuttle? I mean, obviously they lost the entire crew on the 25th mission. So is it like, is it, is it, is it 4%? You know, then they flew a lot of, a lot more missions before they had another catastrophic loss. But in the end, Based on the complete history of it, it you know, one point five percent, one point four something percent of missions, two out of one hundred and thirty-five uh, ended up in the catastrophic loss of the vehicle and the crew. So that and and after the the second accident, that also led to um, enough, at least an, not not necessarily led to the wind down of the program, but led to enough political. Uh, readjustment right. that the program got shut down. Yes. Yeah, so, so let's talk about the two the two disasters. So the first one, Happy Birthday Challenger. Yeah, January twenty eighth, nineteen eighty six. Uh, my parents. Yep. It was on in the hospital, um, like in labor and delivery. I mean, it, it really. And I'm sure you can speak to this. Um, really transfixed the entire nation. Yes. This this was this is the moment that. I, so growing up. Um, People always there was this meme that, that now that fifty years have passed is most of those people are 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 not around anymore. But the the meme was where were you when you heard that Kennedy was assassinated? Right, and that was a thing like for people who lived through nineteen sixty three, everybody remembered where they were when they heard mm-hmm. that the president was killed. Um, for for my generation, it's the Challenger. For my generation, it really is where were you when the challenger exploded because um it was like that it was a it was i mean it affected everyone it was a national it's kind of hard to, to to imagine it now but i mean it was a it was huge it was a it was the it was the blow to especially americans the all of the positive feelings that the united states had invested in the space program all of the kind of uh, the payoff in good feelings that came after the Apollo program um, being harmed by this, uh, you know, that, that was what was bruised here. Um, And so it was a, it was a huge moment for uh, certainly for Americans. And, and, and there was, it was basically like national mourning the classes. I was in high school, um, you know, basically the classes stopped. My science class had the TV on, uh, just with uh, with CNN, basically, and uh, that's all we did. And it was not. I mean, I just I remember that day uh, d- clearly. And, and uh, you know, yeah, there was also the run up to it. I actually remember very clearly waking up back then. I used to have a my uh, my alarm was a clock radio, so my alarm would go off for me to get ready for school, and it was uh, always on in the middle of the the national news on the radio. And I remember very clearly them saying how the space shuttle was was ready to launch, but they weren't sure whether they were going to launch it or not because it was a very cold day and there were icicles on the 
you know, on the, the gantry at Kennedy mm-hmm. Space Center. And that was what I heard. And then I went to school. Yeah. Um, and that's and that is where the the investigation and the the reason for failure really stems from. It was uh, the coldest launch that the shuttle program ever had. And the, the issue that we're going back to those SRBs on the side of the, of the stack, those things had uh, O-rings built into them to seal the gaps in between the sections. And the the problem was it was so cold, those O-rings, the material they were made out of, was not able to expand and fill the channel that the, that the O-ring, that the gasket sat in. And it uh, was a known issue. It was actually an issue that was being worked on by engineers at the manufacturer, the company that built the SRB, uh, which is really just makes this whole thing much more heartbreaking and much more damning to the NASA administration at the time that this was known and engineers were like, hey, this is a problem. And they launched anyways. And it, it yeah. failed as predicted. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, roughly 73 seconds into flight or so, and there's lots of video footage, and I've got a link to photos uh, in the show notes where you can see smoke and then eventually hot gas and flame escaping through the O-ring out the side of the of the SRB down kind of low on the right-hand side. And it burned through a strut. The SRB basically swung out and hit the stack, rupturing the fuel tank and... Um, the stack began to disintegrate and come apart. Um, it's all on yeah, TV. Once it punched, <laughs> once it, once it punched through the fuel tank, um, you know all of that, all of that fuel in the fuel tank goes up, and that's the big explosion. Yes. Is the SRB is you know it has that has that leak that that basically is the torch that lights the external tank on fire. Um, it was all on TV. It was being covered live in those days. Um, uh, my uncle worked in Jacksonville, Florida at that point and was in the, a tall office building in Jacksonville and they would, they would actually gather and watch the launch. Uh, you could see down, you could see the launch coming off of the Cape, even from that far up in Florida. And they, they saw it go up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. And, uh, and the horrible thing about it is as we know now, and you've got this in the show notes, we, we know now that the the capsule containing the crew survived the breakup and there's plenty of evidence that they survived the explosion yeah. um but there's there was no facility in the space shuttle for uh crew escape and so you know they died when the 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 remnants of the shuttle hit the surface of the ocean yeah it's it, it truly is heartbreaking and uh it it did set off a it, it did a couple of things it paused the shuttle program while an investigation took place. And the same thing happened after Columbia. And it, the the report, which I read in high school, I actually wrote a really long-term paper in high school about this. Um, it really changed a lot of things within NASA structurally to, to more uh, prioritize safety and give engineers and people lower in the organization um, better ways to communicate up the chain. And, um, and you know, eventually the shuttle kind of got back on track. Things became um, sort of routine again, and then February first, uh, two thousand three, rolls around. And this time, I'm in high school. Um, I remember this uh, being on TV. You know, when you said uh, talking about you know you know where you, people ask you where you were. For, for my generation, it's where were you on nine eleven. Um, and sure. I remember that and this. Like I remember where I was uh, on February first. And me too. Uh, with Columbia, it was it happened at the other end of the mission, so 
that there was damage at launch, uh, a piece of foam from the external fuel tank from a strut on the external fuel tank struck the orbiter, struck the thermal protection system. It was caught on camera. It was actually um, in a weird twist of irony or, or fate or something. Uh, this mission was one, I think the first one to use this new camera system to detect damage to the tile protection system. And it was caught and they, they saw it, but the footage was uh, low res and it's kind of hard to see what was going on. Um, and the crew was not notified of the damage. There wouldn't have been anything they could have done. And so the decision was made, well, um, if something goes wrong, something's going to go wrong whether they know it or not. And so they don't share it. And uh, Columbia t- goes on its mission, an uneventful mission, everything uh, by the book. And then upon re-entry, that damage uh, creates a opportunity for these hot gases and plasma, this ionized material in the atmosphere, to enter the left wing and uh, basically uh, burn through the left wing. The shuttle begins to break apart. Um, this was visible um, out west and then across the south through the sky. It was a, it was a, a morning uh, with yep. and there's again there's video footage of this there's still photography of this and you can see uh, over the course of several minutes um, the shuttle go from its sort of normal path to being break breaking up and having lots of debris um, basically just screeching across the atmosphere and breaking apart on reentry. Yeah, uh, I remember it well. Uh, I remember it because there was talk about um, the, that it was going to be one of the rare kind of shuttle landings that would be visible from where I live. That I could have gone out at six in the morning and and maybe spied it, although that uh, it was a foggy day, I wasn't going to see it. But um, yeah, yeah, um, different different profile from what we expected. I mean, they always said the most dangerous times are launch and landing, right? And this was this was the 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 reentry accident that everybody feared. One of the things that they did after um, after Columbia was create like a repair kit. Mm-hmm. So the idea was that if there was damage, because that was one of the things about this, is that if they had been on, it was this weird mission where it was not an ISS. It was one of the rare non-space station missions. So there was no chance for them to sort of like observe it at the ISS and see about, uh, you know, whether they wanted to keep going on with the mission or leave the shuttle parked there until they could send something up to repair it or whatever. They were on their own and they didn't have any sort of repair kit for tiles or for the the carbon-carbon stuff that was composite that was on the leading edge of the wing. Um, So they had no ability to do anything. Uh, Essentially, there was no way that they were going to be able to send people up and they couldn't get to the space station. They weren't in that uh, an ISS orbit. They weren't in a lower orbit than that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, and th- that is something that that changed after Columbia. Again, the shuttle program is paused. A big investigation takes place, and um, they made two big changes, um, sort of from a mission perspective. Um, there was only one mission after this, the one you mentioned earlier, uh, going to Hubble. Um, that was the only mission that took place that was not to the space station after this. And that was for a couple of reasons. Um, the big one uh, was that they were going to use the space station as a way to inspect the orbiter. So they introduced right. this, basically this uh, m- new maneuver to roll the shuttle over. And yeah, it did, like flip, flipped all the way around yeah. so they could see the whole thing. Like inspect me yeah. before it's I... It's like a, a dog, just like belly up. Um, and they would take high resolution f- uh, photos of the underside and the the leading edges of the orbiter and inspect them 
And if there would be a problem, then they would already be at ISS. And so they could, um, if it was, you know, deemed too damaged to return or too risky that they, you know, were uh, someplace where they could uh, hold out until uh, another shuttle could could be right. prepared. And they and they were keeping, one of the things they were also doing is keeping a, another shuttle um basically not quite gassed up and ready to go but the, that was the idea right. is that i i think the idea was that they had another shuttle that was on that was mounted and could be rolled out and launched right um as a as a part of it as, as, a, a, as a contingency as a rescue so so it was it was a it was very clear at this point that the that the shuttle program was not going to last because uh the reason that the iss factored into all of these repair ideas was literally that the shuttle was continuing because they had these iss um commitments and that they needed to be done the, the the stuff they were bringing up had to be brought up with the shuttle they were designed to be in the shuttle so they're like all right we will keep doing these shuttle launches to the space station because we have to but we're going to build all of these safety things in and they're going to be based on the space station which is why they weren't going to serve as hubble one last time the idea was that they uh they weren't going to be able to do that um that uh it would be too dangerous and in in, in the end i think the astronaut corps said we're up for it and NASA looked at it, and public support was great, was really high for another uh, mission to the Hubble. And so they did that one where there was less of a security uh, blanket. Although I think then that was the one where they had the, you know, the, they had the other shuttle gassed up and ready to go. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the theory there was if there's a real problem, at least we could send somebody else up um, to to repair them. But uh, uh, but that was it. And uh, and uh and those were the missions that were left. And I remember them saying at the one that I went to, to the last mission, the launch of Atlantis, that uh, one of the additional risks of that mission was that they didn't have um, a backup on the pad. And I think maybe they didn't have seven for that, for that reason, that they had, didn't have as, as large a crew because they, um, they were kind of like game planning. What if you have to leave it at the, at the uh, international space station? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, these two disasters, the loss of life um, in 1986 and then in 2003, um, definitely, I, I think for a lot of people, sort of uh, put a, a more serious tone on space travel. It, 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 there's this tendency we, you know, even looking back like the Apollo 1 fire on the pad of, you know, we have these um, these issues and it the public attitude towards it, towards space exploration and travel can change um but i think to a degree that is that is temporary and things kind of settle back down but the, there is real human tragedy here um so there are a couple of things we want to point out real quick there is an astronaut memorial at the kennedy space yes. center uh, it actually opened the weekend i was there um and if you get to go to ksc you have to go see this it's actually um just completely breathtaking and one of the most sombering places I've ever stepped foot in. It's just, it's just beautiful. We have a link in the show notes to it. Um, See, I, you, you got to the, the one that's the big like exhibition, mm-hmm. you know, of a uh, memorial. I was actually, the, I got to go to the one that's the, I, I guess they call it the space mirror mm-hmm. memorial, but it's also on the grounds and it's a big yeah. black slab with, uh for all of the, um, all of the astronauts, the the two shuttle missions, as well as uh, Apollo One, mm-hmm. um, and there's a uh, there's a song by uh, the Long Winners called "The Commander Thinks Aloud." Um, 
It will make you very sad. It will. But it's a great song, but it's super sad. And it is it is something that John Roderick wrote uh, very specifically um, about the Columbia. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's... Uh, it's uh, heartbreaking, but it's a but it is a great song. Why uh, we'll put a link into a a Wired story, uh, which links to a couple different YouTube videos about the about the song. There's a music video somebody made, and then there's a, a live performance, and then uh, Song Exploder, the podcast, did a story about the song, uh, where they talked to John Roderick about putting it together and his inspiration for for, for doing it. Yep. So the uh, the Soda program retired in 2011. Um, at the time, like you said, the political climate had changed. Um, yeah, Charlie Bolden, the NASA minister, just said the other day that um, the shuttle the shuttle uh shutdown was not due to safety, but the feeling that NASA needed to do go re- return to exploration. Mm-hmm. But the way I read that is, <laughs> finally, there was enough uh, evidence that the shuttle program that was untenable that everybody could agree that it was a sunk cost right. and it was time to move on. And just because we could keep flying these missions doesn't mean anybody wants to do it. The only reason they were doing it is really for the space station and let, you know, let's, let's wrap it up um, and, and go back to the exploration stuff, which I think they felt was going to be more sellable to the public mm-hmm. and, um, and probably cost less and they would be able to get more and already all of the sort of like let's make a satellite and we'll launch it with the space shuttle it's like nobody wanted to do that because the space shuttle was too expensive and too unreliable so there wasn't any reason for the shuttle to keep doing anything other than going to the space station and uh and then all the safety issues on top of it so i feel like it was that agglomeration of things that just sort of like finally everybody was in the same place which is there's no reason to keep doing this um but, you know, it did lead to the gap where there was no reason to keep doing this, but the U.S. attempts to get their own way into um, into space without hitching a ride with the Russians, you know, we were going to, and we're in it now, uh, a several year gap where there's no ability for the U.S. to launch people into space themselves. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so the remaining orbiters are now on display across the United States. Um Enterprise is at the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum. Again, sort of visually restored, but uh, it had been stripped down over the years. Yeah. Uh, Discovery is at the Smithsonian Institute for National Air and Space Museum. Atlantis is at Kennedy. Um, amazing to see. I was really excited to see that this summer. I've got to do that. That's mine. I, I, I presume, presumably, I will go see the Endeavor, which is in Los Angeles at the California Science Center, and which flew over my house. Um, I was in San Francisco. I saw it fly over San Francisco. My wife stood in our uh, in our front lawn and has pictures of the space shuttle passing basically over our house because they did this like grand tour mm-hmm. before taking it to L.A. So I assume I'll see the Endeavor in L.A. But you know, Atlantis, that's the one. Yeah. That's mine. It's really done beautifully. It's um, it a lot of I think maybe even all the others are basically sitting. Um, as if they were on the ground, but this is actually tilted up. It's you are on a sort of balcony at eye level with it. So it's like, it's flying through the building. You go downstairs and the, the, the lower wing is sort of going down to the floor below. It really is a, a beautiful exhibit. Um, and you can just see like, it's walking up to it. It's like, this is amazing. This thing went to space. Like it's, it's just a uh, airplane covered in tiles, but Hey, it got, they got the job done for the most part. So, um, so I think that's uh I think that's the spatial program 
that's that's the story. We know, now we can retire it and move on to the next thing. There we go. <laughs> uh, so if you want to find the links to the things we spoke about today, you can do that in your podcast app of choice, or you can visit our website. The episode uh, page uh, for this week is relay.fm slash liftoff slash nine. Um, on that page, you can send us an email, get in touch. We like hearing about show ideas. Uh, or if you're working on something cool in the industry, get in touch. It's great to hear from everybody. Uh, you can also do that on Twitter. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. You can reach Jason at Snell on Twitter. And Jason writes uh, sixcolors.com. You can find me on Twitter at ISMH or at 512pixels.net. And uh, until the next fortnight, Jason. Yes. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you in 14 days. Bye. Bye.